and the meek shall inherit the earth. What does it mean to be meek? How do we avoid repaying evil with more evil? What about trusting God with issues of justice? Might we become a people who know well how to roll our troubles on the back of Yahweh? Today we're airing a Sunday morning talk from Pacific Community Church in Vancouver, British Columbia by none other than Renovar's Director of Education, Carolyn Ahrens. My name is Nathan Foster, and this is the Renovari Weekly Podcast. So I'm going to share some things on my heart, um, grappling with something that Jesus told us, and I've just been praying that um, the Holy Spirit will take the words I say and translate them into exactly what he's trying to say to you uh, this morning. So we're going we're gonna to try to uh, grapple with this thing that Jesus said, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. And the sort of our presenting question here is, uh, are, the, are the meek weak? Is he saying, blessed are the weak? Um, because I don't know about you, but when I hear the word meek, that's sort of the first thing that I think of. Uh, so as we try to figure this out, we need to keep in mind when Jesus said this when he was here. Um, he said it in his very uh, famous Sermon on the Mount. He kicked off this sermon uh, with this thing we call the Beatitudes, right? Eight blessed R's. And we have to remember he did this in this kind of natural amphitheater at the Sea of Galilee, uh, right at the height of his popularity. So huge crowd, a lot of anticipation, a lot of excitement. Um, and people are starting to think, that the Jewish people who have been under oppression for like 2,500 years and are wondering, when is the Messiah coming? Who's going to finally set things right? Who's going to finally, you know, kick some butt, if I can use the theological term, and, um, you know, give us uh, political and national and economic stability and a chance to practice our faith the way we think it should be practiced. And when's it, you know, they've been waiting and waiting and waiting. Their prophets have been saying, he's coming, he's coming. And there's been some signs with this Jesus fellow that he might be the one. And so this is at the apex of the hope that he's the one that's going to do this deliverance. And he launches into his Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever given. And he starts with these eight Beatitudes, these eight blessed R's. So he says they're waiting, they're waiting for the manifesto, the plan, the military strategy, the military options. And he says, it's really good when you're poor in spirit. Blessed are you when you're mourning, when your heart is breaking. Blessed are the the meek. They're going to inherit the earth. Blessed are you when you're starving and thirsting for righteousness. Blessed are you when, you're, when you take mercy on your enemies. Blessed are you when you're pure in heart. Blessed are you when you make peace. They weren't looking to make peace. They were looking for something different. And blessed are you, here's the capper, when you're persecuted. What? How is this the plan? How is this the deliverance plan? They thought they were going to hear, blessed are you when we set things right and you're a winner and you come out on top and you get to live life the way you're meant to live it. It was completely confusing. And even more than that, this, this word blessed, it's this Greek word makarios. And, you know, in English, we've kind of neutered the meaning of bless. You know, if I sneeze, you'll say bless you. Or uh, early, early in my musical career, I spent a lot of time in Nashville in the South. And I learned that if a Southern person says, oh, bless her heart, you can translate that roughly, oh, dear, look at her outfit. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> but it means something different here. This word makarios, um, it's really a robust, strong word. It means something like how fortunate, how approved, happy, congratulations, oh, how wonderful. Um, my favorite definition is from Karl Barth. He says that we should translate it, you lucky bums. That's what he says we should read it. So, so Jesus at this apex of his popularity, when people are waiting for the deliverance plan, he says, congratulations when you're poor in spirit. How fortunate when you mourn, you lucky bums when you're meek. What is going on here? There's some kind of signal here that life in his kingdom, life that we were built for, is a lot different than we expect it to be. And people, you've probably heard all kinds of different ways of working with the Beatitudes, and a lot of them can shed light. Uh, the one that's the most persuasive to me, I, I got from Daryl Johnson. Do some of you guys know Daryl? Uh, he thinks that uh, we can't understand the Beatitudes and really the whole Sermon on the Mount unless we pay it. That starts in Matthew 5, and he says to understand them, we've really got to go to Matthew 4, where it says that... Um, that Jesus, uh, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus announces that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the kingdom of God, where what God wants done is, is done, is now available and accessible in him in a new way. And then he rolls into these Beatitudes and this Sermon on the Mount. And so what Daryl tells us is that we need to understand the Beatitudes, uh, not as something that we should necessarily strain to be or do, but as what we can expect to happen in our lives as the kingdom breaks into us. So if we say yes to Jesus and his kingdom and we start to sync up our own little personal kingdoms, our will, our agenda uh, to his and his kingdom breaks into us, then this, this list of this really counterintuitive list, kind of confusing list when you first deal with it, uh, is this list of what we can kind of expect to start happening to us as we become kingdomized people. So we're going to try to understand this teaching that blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth in this context of, well, if you and I are getting kingdomized, if the kingdom of heaven is going deeper and deeper into us, breaking into us because we've said yes to Jesus, why does that mean that we'll be meek? And what can we expect for that to look like and, and to happen? So the first thing we've got to figure out is, is what on earth is meant by this word uh, meek. And I've already showing you my cards. When I think of meek, I think of somebody who needs a spine, somebody who needs to get a little more assertive, kind of stick up for themselves or stick up for the truth. Uh, but, but I'm wrong, <laughs> because if you go to the Bible, there's only two people in the Bible that are called meek. Do you know who they are? The two people in the Bible who are called meek? It's uh, Moses and Jesus. Those are the only two people in the Bible who are described as meek. So whatever it's intended by meek in the biblical writings, it isn't weak, because I don't think we would call Moses or Jesus weak. So we know it doesn't mean uh, a doormat, uh, somebody that you can just step all over. So if it doesn't mean that, sometimes when, when we're trying to figure out what on earth uh, something could mean in the Bible because uh, the concept has changed for us over the years, we have a couple of ways that we can tackle it. One way is through etymology. Isn't that an exciting word? Etymology. I love that word. Um, so etymology is not the study of bugs. It sounds like it is, but it's not. It's, um, uh, as you probably know, it's paying attention to how a word evolved over time and different meanings that the word has carried. And when you pay attention to the etymology of the word meek, you find that it was most often applied to beasts of burden, like to oxen, right, that are attached to uh, big carts pulling big heavy things. So when I first started working on this, I thought, 
well, this doesn't help me. I'm not going to pray to be more ox-like. <laughs> I might be already a little too ox-like. What, what, is, what does this mean? Um, but when you think about it, when you think about Jesus teaching in other places, um, that we're all yoked to something. And there's something about the meek which is taking actually tremendous strength, a beast of burden, an oxen, is incredibly strong, taking that strength and choosing to harness it, submit it to the proper authority. So meekness isn't weakness, it's, it's strength in the proper direction, submitted to the proper authority. And I love that Luke said, life is easier when I live it for God than when I live it for myself. Because he's taking his strength, he's not emptying his strength. He's not getting rid of being strong, but he's taking his strength and he's submitting it to the proper authority. He's yoked to the right thing. That makes sense because when we get tired from too much work, um, I think very often it's not the work itself. It's it's if the work feels futile. Um, When in uh, Viktor Frankl wrote about in um, World War II Nazi camps, one, one of the things that they would do to make prisoners of war go crazy is they'd make them get up one morning, get a huge rock, push it all the way over to the other side of a huge field all day. It would take them all day. And then the next day, they'd make them get up and push it all the way back. And they would do that back and forth. And it would drive them mad. Not the exertion, not the work, but the futility. Right? So there's something the meek aren't working for things that are futile. They're working hard, but they're working hard in concert with God, submitted uh, to the proper authority. So it makes me think of, uh, I have a friend whose reaction, kind of default reaction when she sees injustice. She has a high sensitivity to injustice in the world. And her default reaction is anger. It makes her angry. And when that's just kind of in her own strength, that anger, it feels like strength, but it's not. It actually shuts down conversation. It blows up relationships. It's destructive. It doesn't get her anywhere. But I've seen her what she's like when her strength is submitted to the proper authority. And then that anger, uh, when, when she partners with God to work for justice in the world, that anger gives her like this prophetic edge. And she starts, she challenges things, she gets laws changed, she gets policies changed, she gets systems changed, but only when her strength is submitted to the proper authority. When it's not, then it's just uh, destructive. So somehow... Uh, meekness is this, I don't, absolute power might be overstating it a little bit, but it's all our strength, all our power uh, submitted to the proper authority. And that submission actually makes us more strong, not less strong. Okay, so etymology helps us. It helps us because we can think of that ox. Um, uh, the other thing that will help us even more when we're trying to understand uh, something in, in Scripture that doesn't kind of jive with our contemporary understanding is to let Scripture other parts of scripture exegete the part of scripture that we're looking at, right? Like let one part of scripture teach us about another part of scripture. And that's why we read um, Psalm 37, why Laurel read it for us, because it turns out that when Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, he's quoting Psalm 37:11, pretty much verbatim. And if we go over to Psalm 37 and we read it uh, closely, we start to realize it's a little textbook, it's a little primer on what it means to be a meek person, what it means to have our strength submitted uh, to the proper authorities. So if you have it in front of you, we're just going to, we won't work through the whole psalm, but if you have um, scripture available to you, look at Psalm 37, and we're just going to pay attention to a few things it teaches us about what it means uh, to be meek. So the first thing we can find in verses 1 through 3, do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong. 
The first thing we see, and it kind of jumps out uh, all through Psalm 37, is that the meek don't repay evil for evil. The meek trust God for justice. They trust God that he's going to set things right, but they themselves are very counterintuitive. They don't repay evil for evil. And that's very, very foreign, right? We, the way we are, you give me a little shove, I give you a little shove. You cut me off in traffic, I might cut you off back. Or there might be some tailgating or not looking at my husband in the front seat about his driving habits at all. Um, but uh, um, uh, the, that's just the way the world works, right? You give me a little shove, I give you a little shove back. Well, the meek are so strange. They're so different because in the face of evil, they just come back with good. Right? So Martin Luther King Jr. was teaching meekness when he said, darkness isn't going to drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And one of the ways we can understand what happened on the cross, there's so many layers and it's a mystery that we can't exhaust. But one of the things that happened on the cross was Jesus was the first person in history to say, give me all your hate, all your malice, all your evil, give it all to me, and I'm going to be the first person in history who's not going to pass it on. Because the power in hate is that it always gets passed on. I'm going to absorb it into myself. And the meek, as his people, are these weird people who don't repay evil for evil. They're really different. They trust God for outcomes. And that can be on a global sense, and it can also just be not returning a family member's testiness with testiness. That can be very counter-revolutionary. So that's the first thing that jumps out, is that the meek don't repay evil for evil. The second thing is that uh, we see in Psalm 37, 4, very famous verse, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. The meek delight in the Lord and trust him for the desires of their hearts. And this word um, delight here in the Hebrew is really close to um, some language for feasting. The meek actually feast on God, trust him to meet their needs, trust him for the desires of their, of their heart. So when you think about the meek feasting on God, you might think about the Israelites uh, in Exodus 16 getting just enough manna every day to sustain them. Every day coming and trusting in God for what they need to live. Uh, And there's even more to it, I think, and this is a really goofy and embarrassing story, but when I was in high school, I dated this guy for a little while named Dean. It was my first sort of crush, and it was, when we broke up, I was very sad. And my youth pastor's wife at the time, Pam, she sent me a card saying, we're praying for you, we love you. And at the bottom of the card, she wrote Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And I thought, this is fantastic. I have a contract here. All I got to do is delight myself in the Lord, and he'll give me my boyfriend back, because that's the desires of my heart. And I went, I went to the Bible. It was there. I had it in writing. I had a contract. So I thought, okay, great. So all I got to do is delight myself in the Lord. So how am I going to do that? I'm in like grade 10 or 11 at this time. So how am I going to do that? How am I going to delight myself in the Lord? So we used to have in the foyer of our church those little daily bread devotionals. You seen those? So I thought, well, okay, I'll, I'll try this. So I took it home, and every morning I started reading one of these daily bread devotionals and going like, okay, do you see I'm... I'm really delighting in you here, so anytime, do your part. And I started kind of enjoying doing that every morning, and so I started uh, started reading a psalm every night, having some time talking with the Lord every night. And pretty soon I was genuinely delighting in the Lord. And then you know what happened? He changed the desires of my heart. He gave my heart new desires. He taught me to want 
what was good for me. And I'm so glad because that Dean guy was no Mark Aarons, let me tell you. Um, so the, the meek start to realize that not only do they not have to orchestrate and manipulate and control the universe to get what they need to live, but also that they can even trust God to teach their hearts what to want. So the meek are, are really different that way. So that's our second thing. Verse five says, commit your way to the Lord and he will do this. This, this Hebrew here, the meek commit their way to the Lord. The Hebrew there is literally the, the meek roll their way onto Yahweh. Isn't that cool? Isn't that a cool image? They literally, like, what, I, whatever big rocks you came dragging in here today in your mental and spiritual backpack, you, as, uh, as the kingdom of God breaks into you, as you begin to trust God, you can literally take those things and roll them onto Yahweh. So that's what that next picture, that's how I picture this. Um, rolling these things uh, onto God. They commit their way to the Lord, and they don't carry stuff they don't need to carry. When, uh, again, when I was a teenager, I started to notice when my grandma would come visit, this was my grandma on my dad's side, so my mom's mother-in-law, great lady, but she did have that special gift that some mother-in-laws have, that she just knew how to say, just at the right time, the right comments about my mom's cooking or cleaning or child-rearing or whatever, to just kind of make her blood pressure go up uh, very suddenly. And um, when I started to, when I got old enough to kind of understand this dynamic, when I would see it happen, I would walk by my mom and I'd go, water off a duck's back, mom. Water off a duck's back. And what I was trying to say was, just let it go. You know what? She doesn't mean anything by it. And we know your heart. We know that you're a great mom and a great wife and you're doing your absolute best. So just, just let it go. And I wish I had known to say, roll it onto Yahweh, mom. Roll it onto Yahweh. He knows your heart. He's your defender. He's the only judge you got to worry about, and he loves you. Uh, that's what I wish I'd known to say. So, okay, so the meek, they, uh, they don't repay evil for evil. They trust God to take care of the justice department. They um, commit their way to the Lord. They literally roll their way on to Yahweh. They delight on him, trust him for their needs, trust him to even teach them what they need, teach them what to want. Let's go and see just a couple more here. Uh, Verse seven, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. And it was in um, the psalm that uh, Jeff used as our call to worship this morning too. We wait, we wait for the morning, we wait. The meek wait for the Lord. They don't get out ahead of him. They uh, don't give them, you know, like 48 hours and then go, okay, I guess you're busy. I'll take care of this one. Uh, The meek wait on the Lord, but they wait expectantly. We need to, there's some language there uh, really close to what a, to what an eagle does when it wants to fly. If it's up on the top of a, of a cliff, it waits alert and active for just the right thermal wind to come along. And then when that wind comes, it throws itself into the wind and, and flies. And that's what the meek do. They wait expectantly, actively. They don't fall asleep and say, wake me up when you're ready to do something. They wait expecting for God to act, but they do wait. They don't get out ahead of him, which can be really hard. Uh, but they trust that God will act. And then lastly, you, you probably noticed as Laurel was reading the passage, uh, how many times... The, uh, the word fret came up. I think it's at least three times even just in the first 10 verses. Verse one, verse seven, verse eight. The meek do not fret. They do not fret. And the word fret here um, is associated with heat. So the, the meek don't let things simmer. 
You know, some of you probably have, if you're anything like me, have a very long fuse, and you just let things simmer and simmer and simmer and simmer, and then something really seemingly incidental will set you off because you've been fretting. You've been getting hot under the collar. You let things simmer too long. The meek don't do that. They're rolling that stuff onto Yahweh as it happens. Uh, It doesn't mean that the meek never confront or they don't feel their feelings, nothing like that. But when they do confront, uh, it's out of a desire for right relationship. It's out of a desire for um, things to be set right rather than because we got hot and bothered. So if we look at this list, we don't repay evil for evil. We delight in God. We roll our situation onto God. We wait actively and expectantly on the Lord, but we don't get out ahead of him. We don't fret. What we see here is that the meek trust God to be God. And that's why it's a sign of the kingdom breaking into you and me if we become increasingly meek. Because we're getting to know God. We're getting to know the Father and the Son and the Spirit and the way they do business. And what happens when we're living in their kingdom and we just trust God to be God. We, we give up the God job. And when we do, we become very sort of unflappable, strong people. And I think that's part of what uh, Jesus was getting at when he said that the meek would inherit the earth. Have you ever known somebody who just seems to have the world on a string? Just nothing really gets to them. They've inherited the earth. They're meek. They're trusting God to be God. They don't feel like they have to manage the universe, which is a burden none of us can bear. So when we are meek, there's sort of a, a now and a not yet aspect to this, what Jesus says will happen when we're meek. He says, we'll uh, inherit the land. The not yet part of that is that there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, and we're going to enjoy it forever. But the now part is that we become kind of unflappable, kind of invincible. The meeker that we become, the more the kingdom breaks into us. And I want to just give you a quick example of somebody uh, who was meek and really inherited the earth, somebody who just couldn't be flappable. And she was in the first grade, and her name was Ruby Bridges. Have some of you heard of Ruby Bridges? There's a very famous uh, Norman Rockwell painting of Ruby Bridges. Uh, I learned about her originally through Robert Coles, who's a sociologist who was working in the 60s. Uh, uh, I think he still teaches at Harvard, but he was working in the 60s in stress in children. Uh, not very much research had been done in that area, and so he was doing, doing some work on stress in children. And he tells this story about uh, Ruby Bridges, how in about uh, 1954, the U.S. Supreme Court had ruled that schools should be desegregated, uh, but it didn't happen in the South. Um, and so in 1960, a federal judge pressured uh, s- some New Orleans all-white schools to admit some black students. There was a big battle over this. And on November 14, 1960, after a bunch of different legal delays, uh, three little black first graders entered one school, and then one child, Ruby Bridges, uh, entered the William T. France School as the only black child in that school. And he was doing all this, all this research with uh, kind of rich kids in Boston, and he thought, man, if I, if I want to study stress in children, I know where to go. So he went to check out this situation with Ruby Bridges. And he went to the school where she was going to school, and he waited, he waited uh, at about 2 o'clock when school was supposed to let out, and there was a huge, angry mob waiting, angry, furious, uh, with things to throw. And finally, this little first-grade girl, Ruby Bridges, comes out, and people are screaming that they're going to kill her, and they're throwing stuff at her. And then nobody else comes out of the school. And he says, what's going on here? Well, everybody else had boycotted the school. 
So this little girl was going every day as the only child in the school, uh, to school. And one teacher stayed to teach her. All the other teachers boycotted. So he's watching this and he's thinking, I have a specimen here to study about stress. So he gets access to the family and he starts asking the parents, like, so how's Ruby's appetite? And they go, oh, it's pretty good. He says, well, how's Ruby sleeping? Is she really struggling to sleep? And no, actually, she sleeps like a log. And he, he thinks, uh, there's, I want to read you a little quote. He says, um, I said to myself, maybe Mr. and Mrs. Bridges do not know how to pick up these symptoms. I've been used to having parents come to see me from all the well-to-do suburbs of Boston, and you can be assured that parents there knew how to pick up the symptoms. As for Ruby, she was probably more upset than she realized. Eventually she would realize it, or if she didn't, I would realize it, and I would tell her. (laughs) So he keeps studying this girl, he can't believe it, and her teacher, the one teacher that stays to, to teach her, tells him, you know, I've noticed that Ruby is saying something. She's talking to the people when she comes in in the morning and they're screaming at her, and when she leaves in the afternoon and they're screaming at her. And so he starts to ask Ruby what this is, and she says, oh, I'm not, I'm not talking to them. I'm praying for them. And he, he, he can't believe this. And he finds out that at her church every Sunday, the pastor is praying for a list of these people by name. And so he keeps coming back to the parents. Should she be praying for them? I don't know if this is right. And, and then I just want to read you exactly what he says. Once a couple weeks after the first time I mentioned it, I asked again Ruby about this praying. Ruby, I said, I'm still puzzled. I'm trying to figure out why you think you should be the one to pray for such people. Give them what they do to you twice a day, five days a week. Well, she said, especially it should be me. Why you especially? Because if you're going through what they're doing to you, you're the one who should be praying for them. And then she quoted to me what she had heard in church. The minister said that Jesus went through a lot of trouble. And he said about the people who were causing the trouble, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. So when I pray, I say, please, God, try to forgive these people. Because even if they say those bad things, they don't know what they're doing. So you could forgive them just like you did those folks a long time ago when they said terrible things about you. They keep coming and saying the bad words. But my mom says they'll get tired after a while and then they'll stop coming. They'll stay home. The minister came to our house and he said the same thing and not to worry and I don't. The minister said God is watching and he won't forget because he never does. The minister says if I forgive the people and smile at them and pray for them, God will keep a good eye on everything and he'll be our protection. And then this is what Robert Coles, this famous sociologist, writes. Now, little Ruby was saying this in the 1960s about the people screaming at her in the streets of New Orleans. How is someone like me supposed to account for that, psychologically or any other way? Congratulations, Ruby Bridges. Makarios, you lucky bum. (laughs) Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Right? You're meek. You trust God to be God, and it makes you so, so strong. So I'm going to sing uh, one more song just kind of over us. And as I do, I just want to ask you uh, to think about, is there a situation that you need to roll onto God? A situation where you're still trying to manage the universe and you need to roll it onto God. Where you need the, the kingdom to come a little deeper so that you can trust God to be God. I'm just going to sing a song about why we can trust him and do that.
His hands were calloused. Oh, I am sure of that. From years of nails and hammers with his father. His hands were dirty. I know they must have been. The times he healed blind eyes with mud and water. And though I have never seen him face to face, I can say this much: I understand. I believe that he is holding me now. So. His hands were steady, breaking the bread. And fed five thousand souls who came to hear him. His hands were gentle. I know they must have been the little children clamored to be near him, and the. I can say this much: I understand. I believe that He is holding me now. So. Well, there you have it. Hey, if you have questions, comments, or ideas, you're more than welcome to send us an email at podcast at renovare.org. As always, thanks for listening, and have a great week.